Good morning. I invite you to find two books in uh, God's Holy Word. Uh, the first is the book of Ezra, where we've been the past few weeks. And the second is the book of Haggai. If you're visiting, you don't have uh, a Bible handy, look around under the, uh, the chairs. There are Bibles there spread throughout the auditorium. They're there for your use. If uh, you're having a hard time, find Haggai. Uh, turn to the table of contents. You'll find a page number. Uh, those minor prophets, they get a little fuzzy, a little hazy, don't they? Actually, if you go right to the end of the Old Testament, you'll find Malachi work backwards. From Malachi, Zechariah, from Zechariah, Haggai. If you hit Zephaniah, turn back. You've gone too far. So the book of Ezra and the book of Haggai. Haggai is where we want to spend most of our time this morning. But we're going to begin, we're going to be, begin in, uh, in this portion of God's Word in the book of Ezra. And I want you to notice a couple of things in Ezra which will set the stage, set the context for what we're going to hear from the prophet Haggai. Now, the first thing I want you to notice in the book of Ezra is that the first six chapters, which we've looked at, we've considered, we've studied, we've heard them proclaimed, we've heard their message, uh, these first six chapters, they actually constitute a, a unit. The book of Ezra has two units. The first unit, chapters 1 to 6. The second unit, chapters 7 to 10. The first unit, chapters 1 through 6, has one main, key, central theme, or if you like, one overarching subject. It comes out in the very first verse, Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. Look at what we read there. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. And also put it in writing. We've gone back in time here. We've gone back 2,600 years, more or less. And we've discovered that uh, God, before the nation of Israel was overthrown by the Babylonians, uh, God said, he foretold through his prophet Jeremiah, that the captivity would last 70 years. Well, the time has come for a remnant to return from Babylon to Jerusalem. The time has come for the restoration of the temple. And so what does God do? He stirs up the spirit of a pagan king, Cyrus, king of Persia. Now go all the way to the end of chapter 6. Remember, we're looking here at the central theme, the overarching subject. The last verse in Ezra chapter 6, namely verse 22. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So in chapter 1, verse 1, we read that God stirred the heart of the king in order to do what? Accomplish his work. In chapter 6, verse 22, we now look back and we discover God has done what? He has turned the heart of the king in order to accomplish what? His work, the restoration of a remnant from Babylon to Jerusalem and the reconstruction of his temple. That is the main central message of this unit, the first six chapters of Ezra. Its message is this, 
And hear this, I've, I've penned it so as to be clear and concise. Here's the message. A magnificent God has worked in a miraculous way to accomplish a marvelous work. That's the first six chapters of Ezra. A magnificent God has worked in a miraculous way to accomplish a marvelous work. Now, Christian, here's why you and I should be encouraged. I'm speaking to believers, Christians. Here's why we should be encouraged. Nothing has changed. God is doing precisely the same thing in our day. It is not a physical building. It is not a physical structure. It is a spiritual building, a spiritual structure, a household of faith, the body of Christ, that God himself is building by the Holy Spirit for the glory of his name. A magnificent God is working in a miraculous way to accomplish a marvelous work. That's the message of the first six chapters of Ezra, and that is a message that we as his people need to hear today. Second thing I want you to notice in these first six chapters, or remind you of, is the fact that there is an occasion when the work stops. Now, the remnant has returned to Jerusalem. They have laid the foundation for the temple, and they simply uh, walk away. And so God has to speak to them. God has to move in their hearts. And he does so by sending two men, prophets. Prophet number one, Haggai. Prophet number two, Zechariah. And he sends these men of God, he sends these prophets to speak to his people, to stir their hearts so that they re-engage in the reconstruction of the temple. And I want you to notice a couple things about these prophets. Two texts, two references. The first is found in Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So there we read of Haggai and Zechariah. God sends these two with a word of exhortation to the remnant that it's time to get back to work. What we read here, this word, of, this word of exhortation corresponds to Haggai chapter 1. Now the second reference I want you to notice is still in the book of Ezra chapter 6 verse 14. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And so again, here we read of Haggai and Zechariah. No longer is it a word of exhortation to get back to work. But here they deliver what? A word of encouragement to help and support the remnant in their reconstruction of the temple. And so just as what we read in Ezra chapter 5, the first two verses, that word of exhortation corresponds to Haggai chapter 1, here this word of encouragement in chapter 6 verse 14 corresponds to Haggai chapter 2. And so now we've laid the groundwork. We've laid the foundation. My intention all along was to get to the book of Haggai. 
But you see now why we just can't do that. Haggai breathes, he lives, he ministers, he preaches in a context. The first six chapters of the book of Ezra. But now we've got it. We've crossed all our T's, dotted all our I's. Now we're ready to hear from the prophet Haggai. And so follow along as I read the first 15 verses of chapter 1. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. Pause there. Who is Zerubbabel? He is the grandson of the last king of Judah. So he is a civil leader, a political leader. And the word of the Lord came not only to Zerubbabel, but to Joshua. Who is he? The son of Jehozadak. Jehozadak was the high priest, the last high priest in Judah at the time of the deportation. So here you have the two descendants of the king and of the high priest at the time of the deportation. Zerubbabel, a political leader. And you have Joshua, the religious leader, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? Well, this house lies in ruins. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as their, the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. Now here's the question. Here's where we want to begin. What do we see here? We've read it. 
We know we have a pretty, pretty good grasp, maybe a little clouded in places, pretty good grasp on the historical context, the setting. Uh, we understand who Haggai is, and we understand that God has sent this prophet to speak to his people so that they re-engage in the reconstruction of the temple, God's work. But what do we see? What are we supposed to see? Three couplets, three things in these verses. Let me give them to you right at the outset. There is, firstly, a twofold rebuke, verses 2 through 4. A twofold rebuke. There is, secondly, a twofold command, verses 5 through 11. There is, thirdly, a twofold response, verses 12 through 15. Three couplets. A twofold rebuke, followed by a twofold command, followed by a twofold response, and these three couplets followed by a most magnificent promise. That's what we see in these verses. So we begin with the first couplet. Twofold rebuke, we see it in verses 2 through 4. The remnant has a problem. They stopped working. God sends his messenger, Haggai. Haggai is a prophet. That means he receives God's word. He delivers God's word. He's a mediator. He's an intermediary between God and man. God gives him a message. He hears it. He listens. He delivers that message. What is it? It's actually a message of rebuke. Uh, It's a less than flattering message. Uh, Haggai is rather harsh in what he says. Why? Because the remnant has disobeyed God by ceasing their work. Now, here's what's interesting. Back in the book of Ezra, when we read of the remnant stopping to work on the temple, we're almost left with the impression that um, that they were justified. After all, what had happened? Uh, There was was opposition. Uh, There were all sorts of problems surfacing. And so just from Ezra's account, we could be left with the erroneous impression that the remnant, they were actually forced to stop working. But when we hear what Haggai says here, we discover that nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, Their decision to stop working was not forced upon them. It was their own decision. And therefore, God sends Haggai to rebuke them, and he rebukes them for two reasons. The first is this. They have invented convenient excuses. They have invented convenient excuses. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people, that is the remnant, the Jews involved in the rebuilding of the temple who have stopped rebuilding, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Convenient excuses. Why would they say that? We don't know for certain, but here are some possibilities. Here's possibility number one. The opposition is too great. The opposition is too great. Uh, Everywhere we turn, there are adversaries. Everywhere we look, there are enemies. Uh, They're like buzzards gathering around roadkill. They're they're just waiting for for a weakness. They're just waiting for an opportunity. They're going to pounce on us. They, they, They are intimidating us. They are terrorizing us. They are misrepresenting us before the king of Persia. Maybe God's sending us a signal. Maybe God's telling us something. And what God is telling us is that it's not time to build uh, this temple. As a matter of fact, it's time for us to simply cease work, that is to 
walk away. That's possibility number one. The opposition is too great. Possibility number two is this. There are far too many other things we need to do. Far too many other pressing matters. We haven't been back in the land very long. The city is still desolate. Uh, We need infrastructure. We need to rebuild. We need uh, all levels and systems of government. Uh, We need to be looking after our families. It's harvest time. We're needed in the fields. There are many other pressing needs. There are many other immediate needs. And so there are too many other things to do, too many more important things, pressing needs, rather than setting ourselves to the rebuilding of the temple. That's possibility number two. Possibility number three is this. Uh, There's no point. Why bother? Why bother rebuilding this thing? Uh, We remember that when we laid the foundation, we put all those stones in place and laid the foundation, set it in place, uh, we remember the response. Huge shout. And it was impossible to distinguish between the rejoicing and the weeping. Oh, some of us were so excited. But half the people, those who, those who remembered the former structure, those who remembered the glory of the former temple, they took one look at this foundation and they said, what a pitiful thing. This is never going to be like the Halkian days of David and Solomon. This is never going to be like it was before. And they wept. What's the point? And so they simply give up. That's probability number three. Whatever the nature of their excuses, they had invented convenient excuses and had convinced themselves it is not time to rebuild the temple of the Lord. But on their part, it was actually a willful act of disobedience. And they simply sought to legitimize it before God. They simply sought to justify themselves in their own eyes by coming up with convenient excuses. Now, as we make our way through this text this morning, as we make our way through these three uh, couplets, I'm going to ask one question six times, five times. We'll see how the time goes. At least five times, possibly six times. Uh, The question is this, what about us? And so we hear the message of this prophet who lived 2,500 years ago. We hear this message that was given to God's people in a particular context, and it begs the question, what about us? Well, here we see the people of God inventing convenient excuses. The question is this, what about us? To be more succinct, the question is this, have we invented convenient excuses to avoid obeying God? Have we invented convenient excuses to avoid doing what we know God wants us to do? I know. I know I should be more committed to God's people and God's work. But I'm too busy. Too many other things going on. Too many other pulls in my life. God understands. I know I shouldn't leave my spouse, abandon my spouse. But there are extenuating circumstances. God doesn't want me to be miserable. God understands. I know we shouldn't fool around. I know we shouldn't engage in premarital sex. But um, we love each other. And our relationship is special. God understands. I know I should show more leadership in the home. But I've got so much on my plate, and uh, my wife doesn't make it easy. And so I don't. 
God understands. I know I should forgive what he did, what she said. But they crossed a line they should not have crossed. And I'm justified in getting my back up. I am justified in the way I feel. God understands. I know I lose it on occasion. I mean, I blow my top. My temper, the way it goes. But you know, um, that's what I saw in the home growing up. I don't know any better. What do you expect? Uh, God understands. Um, here's what God understands. God understands that we excel at making excuses, convenient excuses, to avoid doing what we know we ought to do. That is the message of Haggai. That is the message of Haggai as he proclaims it to God's people. The remnant knew what God wanted. The remnant knew what God had commanded. They willfully disobeyed to justify their disobedience, to legitimize their disobedience. They manufactured convenient excuses. What about us? Are we guilty of manufacturing, inventing convenient excuses to avoid doing what we know God wants us to do? The second reason Haggai rebukes them. The second reason they've disobeyed and stopped working on God's house is this. They have followed misplaced priorities. So not only have they invented convenient excuses, they have followed misplaced priorities. Verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Into verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? That's an interesting expression, paneled houses. It could mean one of two things. It might simply be a synonym for luxury. Or he might be drawing their attention, he might be drawing our attention to the fact that they had built houses of wood. Where had this wood come from? It was the wood that they had brought, that they had collected, the wood that they were supposed to use to actually build the temple. Well, they found better use for it building their own paneled houses. And so here the prophet rebukes them for following misplaced priorities. Action follows affection. Affection follows esteem. What do these people esteem? Their own comfort. They place a premium on the pursuit of their own comfort over the glory of God and the rebuilding of the temple. And so the prophet rebukes them. The question is this, what about us? Are we guilty of following misplaced priorities? The Lord Jesus declares, we heard it earlier in this adult Sunday school, Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. There is, right there in that verse, packed in there, the Christian's number one priority. Seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. What is the kingdom of God? The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 14 verse 17 gives a threefold description of the kingdom of God. He sums it up in three words. Here are these three words. First of all, he tells us that the kingdom of God is righteousness. Whose righteousness? 
Not our righteousness, Christ's righteousness. There he's making the point that in actual fact we are sinful by nature. We are unrighteous. We need righteousness to stand in God's sight. Where do we find that righteousness? We find it in the Lord Jesus. And so when we believe in the Lord Jesus, a wonderful trade, a wonderful transaction takes place. The Lord Jesus gets my unrighteousness. The Lord Jesus gets my disobedience. He bears it at Calvary's cross, and he bears the punishment I deserve for my disobedience. But I said it's a transaction. Just as he gets my unrighteousness, what do I get? I get his righteousness. And now God sees me through the righteousness of his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is righteousness. But Paul says, Romans 14, 17, not only is the kingdom of God righteousness, but the kingdom of God is peace. Because, you see, those who have been justified by faith now have what? Peace with God. That those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, what does Paul declare concerning them in Romans chapter 8, verse 1? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so for those who have the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, they also have what? They have peace. You see, before getting that righteousness, there wasn't peace. Friend, I say this lovingly, but I say it bluntly. If you, if you aren't a Christian, understand, your relationship with God is not a peaceful one. It is actually an openly hostile one. If you're not a Christian, friend, understand this. God is not your friend. God is your number one enemy. As a matter of fact, God is your number one hazard. God is your number one threat. There is no peace between the carnal man and a holy God. There is no peace between the man who willfully rejects God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and a holy God. There is only peace when we come to God through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ who reconciles us to God, whereby we are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. For that man, for that woman, there is no condemnation. But not only that, Paul says in Romans 14, 17, not only is the kingdom of God righteousness, not only is the kingdom of God peace, but the kingdom of God is joy. Pray tell, can you, can you come up with a greater joy than knowing that your sins are forgiven? I can't. Boy, can you think of a greater joy than knowing that God's wrath has been turned away? Can you think of a greater joy than knowing that at one time, at one time I stood there Outside of Christ, not knowing the Lord Jesus, dead in my trespasses and sins. And God was my enemy. And God's wrath was like this great dam. And this dam holding back the floodwaters. The floodwaters of God's judgment. And there I was, this lonely, solitary figure with this daily threat that the waters of God's judgment would pour out and consume me. And now to know that the dam has burst. Those waters have poured forth, and yet a great hole has opened up just before me whereby those waters have poured in, and it is Calvary's cross. So know that the Lord Jesus has borne that wrath and that condemnation in full. To know that I have the hope of eternal life. To know that the Spirit of God dwells in me. Here is joy. Here is abundant life. Here is peace. The Apostle Paul says, this is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is righteousness. The kingdom of God is peace. The kingdom of God is joy. The kingdom of God is the household of God. 
All who come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. From every tribe, every nation, every tongue. All who are brought together, collected together. For the eternal glory of God triune. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus says, seek first this kingdom. This is the only thing that matters. Seek first this kingdom, God's kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. But are we guilty, friend, of having followed misplaced priorities? The remnant have become more concerned over their earthly comfort than over the household of God. Have we supplanted? Here's a question worth pondering. Have we supplanted God's kingdom with the pursuit of the American dream? James Adams, 1931, he was the first to actually coin that phrase. It's actually not that old. What's that, 80 years? The American dream? Here's what he meant by it. Each person shall be able to attain to the fullest stature of which they are innately capable and be recognized by others for what they are. In other words, the goal of the American dream is to make much of self. The goal of God's kingdom is to make much of God. They are directly antithetical. As a matter of fact, they are irreconcilable. Have we supplanted God's kingdom with the pursuit of the American dream? Have we settled for a brand of Christianity which is really about catering to ourselves? Have we embraced value? Do we esteem things according to a worldly perspective over a heavenly perspective? Is the American dream what excites us? Is the pursuit of all this world has to offer what makes us tick? Do we give more credence, more importance to earthly comfort than to the glory of God as revealed in the kingdom of God. You see, the people of God, they'd stopped working. Why? Misplaced priorities. They esteemed their own earthly comfort as being a greater happiness, a greater source of comfort, therefore something worthy of their pursuit, more than the glory of God as revealed in the rebuilding and the reconstruction of the house of God. What about us? Are we guilty of following misplaced priorities. So there's the twofold rebuke. You have it in verses 2 through 4. The prophet follows it up with a twofold command, verses 5 through 11. Two commands, easy to identify them because they both begin with the same phrase. Look at verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So that little phrase, consider your ways, ushers in, marks the beginning of the first commandment. Now we find it again in verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So there it is again. He employs the same little phrase to usher in the second commandment. Twofold command. The first is this. They need to consider what troubles them. That's the first commandment. Consider your ways. You must consider what troubles you. And so look again at verses 5 through 6. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Here's what I want you to consider. What troubles you? You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. 
You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. He comes back to it in verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. There's the first command. Consider what troubles you. If I walk into the emergency room down here with acute appendicitis, and I'm doubled over in pain, what do I want the doctor to do? I want him to uh, diagnose my problem accurately. I want him to uh, prescribe a remedy for dealing with the appendicitis. The doctor could simply prescribe a bunch of medication. He could simply pump me full of medication to take the pain away and send me on my way. But eventually that medication would wear off. The pain would resurface and I would be in worse shape than I was before. Do you get my drift here? You see, the nation of Israel, this remnant, they're in pain. Uh, They're in trouble. God has brought a severe drought on the land. Uh, They're sowing their seed. Nothing is growing. Uh, They're putting their cattle to work, but there's no fruit. There's no result. There are no rains. There's little growth. They're working, but God isn't blessing. He has brought a drought upon the land. They're in pain. They're struggling and they're suffering. Here's the point. Their pain isn't the problem. Their pain is what? Merely a symptom. Their pain, that drought, is the consequence of what? Their misplaced priorities. That the house of God lies in ruin. The house of God lies desolate while each one takes care of his own affairs. Thereby revealing what? That their heart is not in the right place, that they esteem earthly comfort more than the glory of God. So God brings a drought to get their attention, a drought which costs them, a drought which hurts them, a drought which causes them suffering, a drought which causes them pain. But the drought is not the problem. The drought is merely a symptom. Our question is this. One question, remember, six times. Here's the third time I'm going to ask it. What about us? What about us? Do we consider? Do we give serious time to considering what troubles us? An old Puritan, Thomas Watson, wrote the following. When God withholds the sweet manifestations of his favor, when God withholds the sweet manifestations of his favor, He veils his face and seems to be quite gone from the soul. Quite gone from the soul. A veiling of God's face. A veiling of God's countenance. A withholding of the sweet manifestations of his favor as experienced in a daily walk and close communion with him. Here's the thing, friend. I'm speaking to Christians. Are you in the midst of a spiritual drought? Are you in the midst of a season of spiritual futility? Are you in pain, spiritually speaking? 
If, am I in pain, spiritually speaking? If yes, I need to be very clear here. That pain, that spiritual drought, is not my problem. It is a symptom of my problem. And what is my problem? I, have, I am guilty of misplaced priorities. Oh, a restless spirit. Discontent. A shaken faith. A barren pursuit of God in the means of grace. A joyless worship. A critical attitude. A hard heart. A season of spiritual futility. It is not the problem. It is merely a symptom of the problem. That I am guilty of misplaced priorities. And that there is something in my life that has usurped that position that an all-glorious and all-magnificent God alone deserves. Are we experiencing a season of futility because we've put our interests ahead of God's interests? But there's another command. It comes out in verses 7 and 8. Again, that phrase right in verse 7, consider your ways. What must they consider here? They must consider what pleases God. So the first command, they must consider what troubles them. The second command, they need to consider what pleases God. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. What does he have in view? Verse 8, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. Praise God, it doesn't end there. The building of the house, the building of the temple, really, really, the building of the temple is neither here nor there. There is nothing innately efficacious or wonderful about the building of the temple. It's what the prophet says next. It's what God says through the prophet next. That I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. That's why they should have been thrilled. That's why this remnant should have been excited. That's why for this remnant, every other priority should have paled in comparison with this all-consuming priority and desire to build the house of God. Why? That God might take pleasure in it and that God's glory might be manifested. Why? Because in the history of the nation of Israel, what was the promise? What was the pledge? What was the covenant God had made with his people? I will dwell in your midst. And they were to find their satisfaction, they were to find their joy, they were to find their happiness in the manifestation, in the revelation of the glory of God in their midst. Is that what pleases you? This is what Haggai is saying to them. Consider your ways. Consider, think about it. You're going through a spiritual, you're going through a drought here. Understand that's not your problem. God has brought a drought in order to to discipline you for your sin and and, and and to demonstrate to you your misplaced priorities. And understand this, you've lost sight of what's really important. You've lost sight of what should excite you. You have lost sight of what should thrill you. You have lost sight of where true joy and contentment and comfort and satisfaction and happiness will be found. It will not be found in your well-paneled houses. It will be found again when the glory of God resides in your midst and he takes pleasure in it. His pleasure, this is the message of Haggai, will be your pleasure. Our question, fourth time, what about us? What about us? Do we need to consider, revisit what really pleases God? John Piper writes, the further up you go, In the revealed thoughts of God, 
the clearer you see that God's aim in creating the world was to display the value of his own glory. This aim is no other than the endless, ever-increasing joy of his people in that glory. You see, the building of the house is merely a means to an end. The building of this spiritual house, the church in our day, is merely a means to an end. The coming together of these precious stones in the body of Christ, the household of faith, this spiritual temple, is merely a means to an end. The ingathering of the nations from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who worship the one true living God, is a means to an end. What? The glory of God and his pleasure in it. Is that what drives us? Consider your ways. Consider firstly what it is you have become consumed with, what it is that troubles you. And consider secondly what it is that pleases God and will ultimately please you. And then that twofold command is followed with a twofold response. It brings us to verses 12 through 15. Then Zerubbabel. The son of Shealtiel and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, here's the response, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. A twofold response. It's quite wonderful, really, when you read the Old Testament and you... Uh, you read of the prophetic ministry, Elijah and Elisha and all the others, Jeremiah, Habakkuk. And you read their, their message and their preaching and their proclamation. Time and time again, what do they come up against? Deaf ears, resistance. This is one of the few, opportun- few, few occasions in God's word where the prophet speaks and the people actually respond. It's one of the few in all of Scripture. God reveals his message to Haggai, a prophet. The prophet delivers the prophetic message, and the people respond in obedience and fear. The Spirit of God must be working. The Spirit of God must be active in their lives, in their minds, and in their hearts. Do do you know, do we understand what preaching is like? I'll give you a good idea here what preaching is like. Preaching is like going to a local cemetery standing before the tombstones, the headstones, and yelling at the top of your lungs, come forth. That is what preaching is like. Apart from the Spirit of God, we don't respond, do we? Apart from the Spirit of God bringing understanding, bringing conviction, revealing the glory of God in the face of Christ, the glory of God in the gospel, the glory of God in His Word, there is no response. And here we see the Spirit of God active. Here we see the Spirit of God stirring, working, and there is a twofold response. Firstly, they obey. And so they've been guilty of what? They've been guilty of, of coming up with inventing convenient excuses. They've been guilty of misplaced priorities. Well, enough of the excuses and enough of the misplaced priorities. I now see again what God wants. I commit myself to doing it. I obey. That's the first response. But it's not a mere external obedience. What's the second response right at the end there of the verse? They feared, verse 12, they feared the Lord. And so their obedience 
flows from a proper perspective and understanding of who God is. The Spirit of God must, must have renewed in them, deepened their appreciation for God. Deepened their appreciation for God's greatness. It was, it was God who had stirred the spirit of Cyrus so that we were even able to return to Jerusalem. It was God who supplied for us through Darius' decree, whereby he brought all the resources we need to to, to build the temple. It is God who has protected us from, from, from our enemies. It is God who has provided for all we need. It is God who has been working miraculously to accomplish this marvelous work. Our God is great. Not only is he great, our God is good. He would have been justified to have left us languishing in Babylon. He was not under obligation to accomplish a second exodus. He was not under any obligation to bring us out of Babylon back in Jerusalem. It was simply a manifestation of his goodness. Our God is great. Our God is good. And all I'm concerned with is building my own house. Another grip with fear. As they understand their sin in the light of God's greatness, in the light of God's goodness, They are gripped with fear. How could I sin against such a God? And their fear is manifested in obedience. What about us? What about us? Uh, We belong to a great God. A God who has declared, I measure the universe in the span of my hand. A God who dwells in unapproachable light. A God who is a consuming fire. All-knowing, all-powerful, all-sovereign. We belong to a good God. A God who has condescended, humbled himself, walked among us, given himself at Calvary's cross for us. Friends, when we sin, when we're guilty of misplaced priorities, when we're guilty of convenient excuses, in the light of God's greatness, In the light of God's goodness, have we no fear? Have we no fear? Do we understand who he is in his essence? Do we understand how he has manifested his love for us in the giving of his son? This breeds fear. Fear ushers out in obedience. And this is the twofold response of the remnant. A twofold rebuke, a twofold command, and a twofold response. And then it is all followed with a wonderful word of encouragement, a glorious promise. Look at the 13th verse. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message I am with you declares the Lord, I am with you. And what a wonderful word of encouragement for us this day. Our God is with us. Who is with us? A God all-glorious, a God enthroned in majesty, a God who is holy, holy, holy. How is he with us? A holy God with an unholy creature, an infinite God with a finite creature, a glorious God with a rebellious creature through the work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through reconciliation, through his blood, by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and makes us one with the Lord Jesus Christ. When is he with us? Always. 
I am with you. What a tremendous uh, encouragement, motivation to obey, isn't it? Obedience can't be divorced from grace or we're left with legalism. But when we consider God's grace and this great promise to his people, I am with you. When we consider how he is with us through Christ's reconciling work, through the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God, what a tremendous motivation to obey. And what a tremendous motivation to repent, knowing that our God is with us, knowing that our God receives us, knowing that our God forgives us in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, when I hear the prophetic message, when we hear the prophetic message and the rebuke of our sin, the temptation is to what? It is to run and hide. The temptation is self-condemnation. The temptation is to turn away, and yet the invitation is to come. The invitation is to remember, Christian, that he has promised to be with us. The invitation is to remember who is with us, how he is with us, when he is with us, always. Our little daughter, Emma, she's going to start walking soon. And she's already showing the the signs. In the next couple of weeks, she's going to take... uh, a step or two, and then she's going to fall down. And when that happens, Allison and I, how are we going to respond? We are not going to condemn her for falling down. We are going to jump up and down like crazy people over the first couple of steps she takes. Then we're going to help her up. She's going to take three steps. She's going to fall down. We're going to help her up. She's going to take four steps. She's going to fall down. We're going to help her up. She'll start walking, her arms flailing. Then she'll be walking well. Then she'll be running. Then she'll be skipping. Do you get the idea, Christian? God is not pleased with our sin. God does discipline us for our sin. God does rebuke us for our sin. But when we fall down, he does not condemn us. He is there to pick us up in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is with us. God is with you. That's the word of encouragement that Haggai leaves with his people. Oh, he's laid it on thick, hasn't he? He hasn't pulled his punches. He has told them exactly what they need. He has put his finger on the pulse, their sin. And he has called them to obedience. He has called them to repentance. And then he has given this wonderful assurance. God is with you. Makes us think of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it, before his ascension. I am with you until the end, always until the ends of the age. What a wonderful insurance, what a wonderful motivation that when we fall down to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, to turn, yes, with penitent hearts, to turn, yes, with determination to obey, but understand that our Heavenly Father is gracious and to understand that our Heavenly Father has promised, I am with you. Our God in heaven above. How we pray you'll help us to take these words to heart. We pray that you would give us illumination and understanding insofar as your word is concerned. We pray that you might give life where there is nothing but death this morning. We pray that you might give light where there is darkness. We pray that you might give truth where there is error. We pray that you might give comfort where there is discouragement. We pray that you might bring conviction where there is hard-heartedness and stubbornness. We pray, our Father, that in all things you might be glorified as you work in our midst through your Holy Spirit. 
We ask it and pray it of you in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.